Good morning once again. Glad to have you with us. My wife and my family are now officially Westies. We live over in the Wild West. And thank you to all who helped us move in. And we're pretty much all sorted. And we moved everything in, unpacked everything. And then we spent the next couple days sorting out all the recycling, the soft plastics, the hard plastics. That's, that's a new thing, but I'm, I'm getting it. I got it now. I'm getting there. So we're so grateful to be over there. Come, come visit us. And there's actually... A few houses for sale over there as well, so if you want to check those out, who, who, knows, who knows what might actually happen. I'm very close. I could actually run full-out sprint to Walter's house, probably in about five minutes. And I could also run to Ramal's house, maybe a little, maybe even quicker to Ramal's house. And then I could also flat-out sprint to Dee's house, all, all three of those houses. So uh, that's pretty awesome. All right, so, but none of that really makes a difference to what we're studying this morning. But if you do have a Bible, turn over to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll study out this passage from Galatians. Many times people that are opposed to Christianity will say, what does it actually do for you? Why become a Christian? Can I not have the things that Christians have without being Christian? Can I not experience joy? Can I not serve? Can I not do this, that, and the other? Do I have to actually become a Christian to do those things? Now, that's a longer answer, but the shorter answer is, no, you don't have to be a Christian to do those things, but to do them in their fullest. To do them in their fullest requires the Holy Spirit, requires the Scriptures, and requires the fellowship. And so, we will explore all the things that you will experience when becoming a Christian, but this morning we'll look at three of those. Studying out the Bible and understanding the gospel and understanding God and Jesus and the whole story can make you more thoughtful, it can make you more thankful, and it can make you transcendent. That's a cool one, eh? It'll make you more thoughtful, more thankful, and transcendent. So those are three, and you, you can't necessarily be those in their fullest without the gospel. That's the argument from the scriptures. Let's pray and read, starting in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. God, we are so grateful for Jesus on the cross as was shared during the communion, and we're so grateful for the fellowship we have in Christ. We do ask that your spirit, which created everything in the beginning, which raised Jesus back to life, which lives inside of believers, we ask that that spirit really guides us to truth found in your word, and we can apply it to our lives, and then we can spread this word to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's read Galatians, starting in verse 15 of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to you and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, that may not make a lot of sense to us, but Paul is doing some theological hair splitting. It's not seed, it's seeds. Imagine having a conversation with Paul. He would really break it down for you. Verse 17, what I mean is this, the law 
introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given it at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So, the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What in the world does all that mean anyway? Galatians is such a complex, thick book. Prayerfully, you walk away not thinking about all the terminology, but that this gospel makes you more thoughtful, more thankful, and also transcendent. To understand this chunk, it's part of a larger argument. And to break it down simply, Paul is simply saying, the gospel is more about grace and less about law. That's kind of the overarching picture. But first, let's talk about how the gospel makes us more thoughtful. In chapter 3 itself, there are three, at least three, more. There are at least three in this chapter, but there are more in the book of Galatians and more in the New Testament. There's three questions that really guide Paul's response. Chapter 3, verse 2 is one of those questions. In 3, verse 2, he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you, talking to the Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the law, by doing the law, or by believing? And so he'll respond to that question in the context of this argument. Then later in verse 19, after he continues, he says, Why then was the law given at all? As he's thinking this through. And then in verse 21, another guiding question. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Keep in mind who Paul was before he became a Christian. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee who faultlessly kept the law. That's what he says in his autobiography. Hey, I kept the law to a T. When he becomes a Christian, you better believe he had given some thought as to the importance of the law now. Because now it's all about grace. And so you, you imagine that Paul, this is written probably 
It's his earliest letter, but you, 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 try, you see him trying to grapple with why, why, did, why did we get the law anyway? And what does it mean? Does the law and grace, are they opposed to each other? But through his conversion, God opens his mind and he starts to understand the bigger picture of how grace works, of how law works, and how all of it works together. Now, if you were a Jew, you, you thought your national identity started at Mount Sinai. What happened to Mount Sinai? God comes down on the mountain. Moses goes up to the mountain. They get the Ten Commandments. The law. And what does the law do? The law makes Israel a people. Now they have a guiding body of work that says this is how you live and this is how you shouldn't live. And from that they say we are a nation now. The law made us a people. Everything in the mind of a Jew, everything up to the law was just kind of prelude for the opening act. When you go to see a concert, there are bands that come out that no one really pays attention to except obscure musos. But then the main act comes on, everybody knows them, right? The Jew said the law is the main act. Everything up to that is just kind of an opening band. And so the law is what made us who we are. So Paul's thinking about this and he says, okay, you say that the law is the main act, but think about what God did 430 years before the law. Before the main act, God promised Abraham and Abraham was credited simply because he believed. There was no law. There was no Ten Commandments. There was none of that. God said, here is what I'm going to bless you with, except this. 430 years later, the law comes on the scene. So you're telling me that God is going back on his word. He initially promised that he would bless Abraham, but now he's saying, oh, on second thought, I'd rather have you do a lot of work to get blessed. That's, that's what the Galatians are essentially saying. So Paul, as he's thinking this through, says, no, 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 no. God started everything with a gracious promise. 430 years later comes the law. Now imagine being in Galatia. Jews are familiar with the law. They're familiar with this terminology. Gentiles are not. So if you're hearing this letter read as a Jew, you kind of know the background and the history. But as a Gentile, you're really paying attention. Trying to figure out what all this is about. So Paul, even in his writing, expects both Jew and Gentile to kind of catch on and listen and understand and think about these things. And essentially, Paul, as he's thinking these things through personally and wants the church to think through, he wants to let them know the gospel makes you more thoughtful. Why is there the law? Is the law opposed to God? Did you receive the Spirit by work or by grace? Become a good Christian. Converting to, to, to Christianity, following Jesus, doesn't mean you switch off your brain and blindly follow. It means you become more thoughtful. More thoughtful and engage more with your mind. There's a fascinating book called Switch on Your Brain. In fact, you can switch on your brain right now so you can figure this out. And a lot of what the premise is, is that our mind is plastic. In other words, you can always change it. You can change it for the positive or you can change it for the negative. This isn't fantasy or fiction. This is scientific fact. When you start to engage in a specific thought pattern, it changes the shape of your mind. It changes your body. It changes your mental and physical health. 
Your thinking is very important. Your mind is constantly building new networks, constantly building new thought patterns, etc. and etc. Read the book and it'll blow your mind. But they have an interesting fact, and this is done by a Harvard medical Student, uh, study, so you, you can look through this on your own, but they, they suggest that 98% of physical and mental illness comes from our thought life. That's crazy. That's actually quite crazy. That means that the, the mind is so powerful that even if something's not wrong, but you think it wrong, it can become wrong. That's how powerful the mind is. And so the point from this book is that our mind is constantly shaping. But the point from the scriptures is that the deeper you think, the more you can change. Now imagine as a disciple of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Imagine the depth to which you can think. And therefore the depth to which you can change. Simply by converting to Christianity. The Holy Spirit allows us for deeper thinking. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, we don't talk about worldly wisdom. We have the mind of Christ. And he says, what is the mind of Christ? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit searches the mind of God. We have access to the very Spirit that knows the mind of God. There's not much, there's nothing deeper than that. There's no, you can't get any more depth than that. And we have access to that. We have the most potential for change as disciples because we have access to the mind of God. And because of this, Paul, when he converted, he was able to see, ah, now my mind is open, I'm more thoughtful. It's more about grace changing me, less about the law. What does this mean in our everyday lives? Well, for teens, it means if you're a disciple, you can make better grades. No, that's not what it means. That'd be nice. That'd be sweet. But you can make better decisions. As a disciple of Jesus, you have a spiritual discernment that sees past the superficial and sees into the heart of things. You can see, not into the future, but you can kind of see how things can play out if you allow the Spirit to help you discern those things. If you're single, you can, you can not just be pure for the sake of being pure, but you can look into the heart of why God calls us to be pure, and you can discern why it is we need to be called to be pure. If you're a parent and you're raising your kids, you can see into the heart of the matter. You don't just randomly try to parent and raise your kids, but you have a, a spiritual depth that allows you to raise your kids in a spiritual way. The world doesn't really think that far ahead. They may think in terms of education and finances, but they don't think on terms of eternity. It also impacts our outreach. As a young Christian, when I would reach out to people and they would ask me a question that I didn't have an answer for, I would say, well, the Bible says so. That really doesn't fly. Okay, so what? The Bible says so. I don't believe in the Bible. Right. (laughs) Now what? But because we have the Holy Spirit, I can go back and say, that was actually a pretty good question. Let Let me consider, let me be thoughtful about that. Let me study out the eternal truth of the Bible. Let me come to some conclusions and some convictions. The next time somebody asks me that question, I can give a more thoughtful response. And whether they're open or not, I can at least cause them to think. Instead of saying, the Bible says so. 
In modern times, one of the hot buttons is sexuality, homosexuality, sexuality. If you just say, oh, God wants you to be whatever, people aren't going to really listen. But if you've thought through this, if you've studied the scriptures, if you can have kind of a disarming response, someone may listen. Because of the Holy Spirit enriching our thought lives, our outreach can be richer as well. Authority. A lot of people have issues with authority and they say, well, I don't want an authority in my life. I don't want someone telling me what to do. But if you have a thoughtful response to that, it opens the door for more conversation. It also allows us to think before we act. Think about our actions. Think about our words. What we're going to say. What are we going to do? We can think about that beforehand before we actually do it. Why? Because the gospel helps us become more thoughtful. Look at my own thought life. That's me at age 18. Not a lot going on there. What are you going to do after you graduate? Um, what do you want to do with your life? You know, not, not, to be honest, not much more than what I'm doing that day. Post-conversion, almost 20-some years later, let's talk about three theological points today. Right? And that's that, man, God has kind of forced me into a position where now I'm actually thinking about Scripture. I'm thinking about stuff that matters, and I'm thinking about how to raise my family and plan for the future. And in other words, the gospel helps us become more thoughtful. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't mean every day you have to have a deep theological quiet time where you arrive at a conclusion and you're ready to write an excursus or a dissertation. But a couple times a year you should tackle a question and and study out something that you think about and ponder and come to a conclusion where you reflect on God's eternal truth. And you can do so because you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you, giving you the ability to be more thoughtful. Point number two, the gospel makes us more thankful. As he, as Paul writes and addresses the church in Galatia, he responds how it all kind of fits together. And the core of it is basically you've been saved by a gracious God and not by works. That ought to make you more thankful. That ought to make you more grateful. Verse 17 of our text Paul gives several reasons why we should be more thankful and why grace triumphs over law. Verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. What does that mean? God's first covenant was grace. That sets the tone for the rest of salvation history. Abraham, I'll bless you and make you a great nation. Abraham believes and he's credited with righteousness. That's the very beginning. The law and the commandments don't come until 430 years later. So Paul's saying, look, God already did this in the beginning. When the law comes, the law doesn't do away with the grace already established. That should make us more thankful. In verses 19 through 25, here's here's a condensed version of what Paul is saying. The law is not on the same level as grace. Abraham is given a covenant and God basically says, accept this. 430 years later, God gives the law and tells Moses basically, do this. Those are vastly different, right? Accept this gift. 
I'm giving to you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. 430 years later, you better do this. Right? So that, that's, that's, but the law doesn't do away with the promise. And that's kind of Paul's argument. And the law was only for a certain period of time. From Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. That's kind of the duration of the law. Moses gets it. And then it only lasts until Jesus dies on the cross. And then, according to this, they're set free from the law. And also, it acts as a guardian. So it doesn't have the primary purpose of saving you, but it shows you, you need to be saved. That was the main purpose of the law. So when Paul's writing this, basically... He also says it's kind of a guardian that watches over us and he uses that metaphor. But as he's writing to the church in Galatia, basically his main point is the law doesn't save you. And now they're a bit offended because they say the law makes us who we are. That's our very identity. Are you saying we completely do away with the law? And that's why Paul has this question. No, no. Is, Is the law opposed to the promises? No, 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 no. It's not. But it doesn't serve the main function. Grace does. The law was secondary. God gave both the gracious promise and the law. He's not contradicting. He's just helping us understand we need grace. And so Paul, through verses 19 through 25, he says that the law basically was kind of like a custodian or a guardian or a disciplinarian kind of watching over you and saying, you better stay in line. See, you can't really stay in line. You need grace. Everything written in the law, you can't do. You can try your hardest, but you cannot do it. That's the purpose of the law. Mainly, it's it's not to save you, but to show you and me, we need God. That was the purpose. What what else does the law do? Well, Paul, as he reflects on it further in Romans chapter 3, Romans is kind of an expansion of some of the thoughts in Galatians. But Romans 3 says, the law made us conscious of sin. And so he didn't really know, or we didn't really know what sin was until God said, don't kill Okay, well, I shouldn't kill. Well, that's opposed to the law of serving other humans. And so the law helps us understand sin. Later in Romans chapter 5, this is a weird passage. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. The law was given so that we could be more sinful. It's probably a new a way to translate that. So when, when Paul is writing, he says, you know, is it opposed to God? No, it wasn't that the law was the problem. It just exposed how sinful we are. When the law came on the scene, it exposed how much we actually sin and need God's grace. And then, and this is an interesting, it's Romans 7 verse 20, not Romans 5 verse 20. It's Romans 7 verse 7. But this is an autobiography from Paul. And I found this astounding. I never knew because I I think, what did Paul struggle with before he became a disciple? Here's what he says in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. I would have not... I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. There's Paul saying, before I knew the law, man, but when, when the law said, thou shalt not covet, I feel like, man, that's all I do is covet. I can't stop 
So all throughout Galatians, all throughout Romans, he's saying that the law just showed you you needed grace. And because grace was already established, you need to be thankful for it. We're in a desperate need. It's kind of like when Egypt told Israel, make bricks without straw. It can't be done. The law is saying, be like God. Nobody can do that. It was only to show us how much we need God. If you were to think of it in terms of a road, nice table here. Think of it in terms of a road. The major road throughout the scriptures is that of grace. From beginning to end, God clothes Adam and Eve. That's gracious. God saves Noah and his family. That's gracious. God pulls aside Abraham and gives him a covenant with no requirements. That's gracious. All throughout scripture, that's the dominant theme. The law in Romans chapter 5 verse 20, it uses the imagery. It's a road added as a side road that eventually takes you back to the main road. And when you drift off, you see, man, I, I can't do this without God's grace. I can't do it. And that's, that's all Paul is trying to say to this church because they have embedded themselves in the position, we need the law. But Paul says, no, it should produce a sincere thankfulness. Now, how does this play out in our everyday lives? Well, I think if we woke up tomorrow and said, man, grace is the dominant theme, it would change our motives for being Christians. We wouldn't want approval. We wouldn't want acceptance. We'd understand we've already been approved. We've already been accepted. Our motives become purer. Our motives become more righteous. I think an even more impressive application is we'd be gracious to one another. In the body of Christ, we're all flawed by sin, and we do make assessments, judgments, and criticisms of one another, if not out loud, in our minds. But if we truly understood how much we need God, and how much we've been saved, we would be extremely gracious with one another. Right? We'd also be gracious with those we reach out to. One of the wild interactions Jesus has in the Gospels is with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler runs up to him and says, I, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've been so good since I was a boy. And he says, I've done this and that and that. And I think, really, you didn't lie to your parents? I, is there a kid that does not lie to their parents? Is there, and he says, I've, I've obeyed my parents since I was, is there a kid that does not disobey their parents? And so he comes up, but he says this to Jesus. He says, I've done all that since I was a boy. And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, right. He says, you lack one thing. And and I just think, if I'm studying the Bible with this guy, I would say, really? There's more than one thing you got to work on, man. Jesus was so gracious. Hey, there's one thing that's really Preventing you. I find that fascinating because I see this guy and I think, man, he's, a, he's so religious, so proud. And Jesus says, one thing. Man, that's so gracious. From Jesus to this rich young man, if we really understood this and we're studying the Bible, people, we probably see everything that's going on in their life and we could tackle from all angles, but maybe we pray for discernment and say, hey, you know what? There's, there's really one thing. Keeping you away from Jesus. 
being gracious with them because we've experienced grace as well. You don't look at everything and try to tackle every problem. Hey, there's one thing. The gospel gives you, me, us the ability to be more thankful. Lastly, transcendent. The gospel helps us be more transcendent. Because of grace, because of our baptism, we can actually transcend cultural boundaries. Look at verse 28. Because, and this, this is a connection to verse 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Since that's true, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Thought about why? What does he pick these categories randomly? It just says Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male and female. He, he, he uses those in other letters as well. But if you think about it, they boil down to some big points. Race. That's a definite social and cultural boundary. Slave or free, that's your economic capacity to either make money or not make money. So race, money, male and female, sexuality. How many hand, fingers I got up? But those are, those are three big cultural and societal boundaries. And Paul says, when you're baptized in verse 27 into Christ and clothe yourselves with Christ, you transcend every cultural, you transcend every societal boundary and you become one. Nothing on planet earth can do that for you except the gospel. And, and those things aren't bad in themselves. Race, money, and sexuality but sin has corrupted all of those things. And when you get baptized into Christ, you're free from the strangle that those have on the world. And you transcend those and you become one common community. The world cannot achieve that. It can only be gifted. Because people try that. People try to form clubs all across the globe that bring people together, but it's not genuine unity. That can only be a gift that transcends what the world has to offer. In verse 27, there's an interesting parallel because he, he uses these two images. You get baptized and you clothe yourself in Christ. And if you think about it, there, there is some potential parallels with getting baptized and being clothed. In the, in the ancient world, what they did is they would dye clothes in, in order to change their color and put them on. So think about these two concepts. When you get baptized, you go into the water, old person, you come up, new person. When you dye clothes, you put in clothes of one color into the basin, they come out a different color. So both have this parallel, and so there's, there's enough evidence to support that there's a potential link to what Paul's saying here, is that when you, you baptize yourself with Christ, and you clothe yourselves with Christ. In other words, when you get baptized, you lose whatever color you were, and you become one color. So when you get baptized, are you ready? As baptism, everybody's one. In the previous picture... There's all kinds of different, you know, there's red and white, there's American and Kiwi and South, it's whatever. And everybody has their different backgrounds. And you try to bring them together, good luck. 
When you convert, everybody's the same. Everybody transcends the cultural and societal boundaries. Do it again. Last time, if you didn't get it. This is who you are. This is who you become. Wait for it. Look at that. They're washed, and now they're one. All one. Now you get it. Being in Christ, you transcend all the cultural and societal boundaries. This, makes, this is what makes our fellowship electric. When people come, they say there's so many different races, so many different nationalities. Why? Because it's been gifted to us by God. The denominational world doesn't have that. This is something that God gives us. We need to appreciate that because God has allowed us to transcend cultural boundaries. In conclusion, there's a quote by Karl Marx. And he was a philosopher that basically said, religion or Christianity is what? Opium for who? Opium for the people. Thank you. So Karl Marx says religion or Christianity is an opium for the people. In other words, it reduces your capacity to deal with reality. Like a drug. And that's, that, that thought has carried on. There's, there's a similar thought in modern day society where all, Christianity is a crutch for the coward. But from this passage and throughout the scriptures, it's actually the exact opposite It is not the opium for the people. It doesn't reduce your capacity to deal with reality. It enhances your capacity to deal with reality. It allows you to become more thoughtful about your life, about other people, and about eternity. It allows you to become more thankful about what God has done, what God is doing, and what He will do, and what He can do. It allows you to experience transcendence. No other group on the planet has what the church has. A mixture of different races and different cultures. What can the gospel do for you? What can the gospel do for me? What can the gospel do for our church? It can make us more thoughtful. It can make us more thankful. And it can help us transcend. Amen.